You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, a very warm welcome to you, Womanika. Tonight, I would like to begin by acknowledging the Yaluk et Wilam as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Now, Yaluk ut Wilam means people of the river camp. And you can see why people who were here would be called that. And we acknowledge that cultural practices have unfolded on these lands for many thousands of years. We pay our respects to the land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and emerging. A very warm welcome to our event, Perfectionisms, this evening. This is the second of the Hugh Williamson Foundation lecture series for the Science Gallery. Now, my name is Professor Shidesh Kapoor. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry, and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And very soon, we will see an exciting new public space open its doors at the university. It'll be called the Science Gallery Melbourne. And it's currently being built where the old women's hospital used to be. Now, many of you would know of the old women's hospital, but if you haven't been there in the last six months looking for it, if you go there, don't be surprised it isn't there anymore. You'll find a very big hole and a number of diggers, and we are building something that's going to be called Melbourne Connect. Now, the Science Gallery will be right on the ground floor of Melbourne Connect. It will be where Grattan meets Swanston, but more importantly, it will be where art meets science, and it will be where the university meets the community, and it will be where we hope that we'll bring young adults and inspire them with science. Now, our two hosts this evening, by my side, are both musicians. And although medicine and music may seem strange bedfellows to many, at the Science Gallery, a meeting of art and science, both are totally at home. In fact, there are many doctors who are also accomplished musicians. And I think most of our accomplished scientists would argue that science is inherently a creative pursuit. They may play with different instruments, their outputs may look a little different, but both art and science at their core are a passionate pursuit of perfection. And that's why our event today is Perfectionisms. It is a part of a pop-up program called Perfection, which is an exhibition and a series of public event programs that explore how far we will go in our quest for perfection. Now, the exhibition itself is currently showing at the Melbourne School of Design, and I would encourage every one of you, if you've not been there, do make it a point to attend, because you will see there the utopian, or you might call it dystopian journey of how we're using plastic surgery, genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, to change ourselves and change the world around us to make it perfect. It's a mixture of biology and mathematics and psychology. And today here, we're to talk about the psychology aspect of it. So we want to have a discussion that will explore how perfectionism exists both positively and negatively across a range of different industries. And this need for precision and this need for perfection often leads to anxiety and dysfunction. Now, I'm a physician, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, but I'm now the dean of the School of Medicine at the University of Melbourne. 
And I see an interesting take on this. As you can imagine, it's hard to get into medical school, so the 352 medical students we get every year are people who have usually been at the top of their class. And then they come to the University of Melbourne, and only one of them can now be at the top of the class. And many who've never been anywhere close to the middle or the bottom of the class now find themselves at the middle or the bottom of a class. It's a huge transition for them. They react differently. Some of them still strive perfection and make it right to the top. Some of them realize that the world is a varied place and they came not to be perfect and just to be good doctors and they become very good doctors. But some of them struggle. And I think today we will talk about the range of this. And we are very fortunate that we have two people who will lead us through this. Our hosts tonight are Margaret and David. Now, Dr. Margaret Osborne draws on her own experience with debilitating performance anxiety as a developing musician. And it is that that she brought later to her work. She is now a lecturer in music as a performance science, but she's also a lecturer in psychology at the University of Melbourne. She has published numerous papers on performance anxiety, including perfectionism, and she has developed and coordinated three new undergraduate and master's level subjects in musicians' health, optimal, and peak performance under different conditions. And she's a registered psychologist and the past president of the Australian Society for Performing Arts Healthcare. Now, Dr. David Irving is a senior lecturer at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, the University of Melbourne. He's a passionate performer on the Baroque violin. He has worked with numerous early music groups in Australia and Europe, including the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, the Gabrielli Concert and Players, the Hanover Band, and the Early Opera Company. Ladies and gentlemen, I leave you in the hands of Margaret and David. Well, good evening, everyone, and Woman Jake, uh, um, welcome to this event. And uh, like any event, we've made very precise plans for a perfect um, laying out of all of our stories and experiences. And of course, this is all going to disintegrate into a generalized discussion, we hope. Um, and it's something we really hope there's going to be some interaction from you um, towards the end. We, we've got a kind of a loose script where we're going to talk about uh, experiences of perfectionism with, with all of our different guests who we're going to introduce one by one. Um, Shatij uh, has kindly uh, introduced Margaret and me. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit uh, more about myself. Um, I teach uh, music history and musicology at the University of Melbourne. Um, I'm a fellow of the Australian Academy of Humanities, where we, we basically try to explain uh, the meaning of lots of things to lots of different people in different ways. Uh, but that's my day job, and, and then I go off and play the violin and prepare for concerts and hope that things go right. Um, I think that one of the, the best images that anyone has ever given to me about what it is to be a musician preparing for a concert and then seeing what happens in real-time live performance is the beautiful sand mandalas that are made uh, in Tibet and parts of India before big festivities, before processions, the, the ground will be covered with these intricate, intricate um, uh, sand patterns like, like mosaics, all sorts of mandalas. They'll take thousands of 
if you took one person to, to make all of these, it would take thousands of hours to create it. And then all of a sudden, in the big event, everything is obliterated as people walk across it. And it's, it's a big kind of sacrifice of all of this labor in a big celebration. And I think that's a beautiful analogy for preparing for performance. No matter how hard you try to put all the elements together, or it's a bit like cooking as well. You can chop really carefully, you can prepare really carefully. And then in the big scheme of things, it's all just going to come out the way it does. Now, in music, we, we have this kind of divide between, on the one hand, the messiness of rehearsal, the striving towards an ideal of perfection, then the messiness of an actual performance. We also have this division, a very old division, um, between what we call the theoretical side of music, and um, so the speculative side of music, and then the practical side of music. So this division between speculative and practical, and I'm not going to give you a lecture here, is um, it goes right back to antiquity and through the Middle Ages. There was always this division between the speculative or theoretical and the practical. And people believed very, very strongly in antiquity and the Middle Ages in the absolute perfection of numbers and ratios. And music was, uh, I, I know Shatich said that music and medicine are strange bedfellows, but right up until the end of the Middle Ages, music was one of the sciences um, in the quadrivium of astronomy, arithmetic, uh, geometry. There was also music, so these four uh, sciences that were the quadrivium. And the trivium was grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And these made up the seven liberal arts. So when you hear about liberal arts colleges today, um, they still hearken back to this idea of the seven liberal arts from um, medieval thought, which, which did have some... Uh, uh, life in the Renaissance as well, um, until gradually things began to change. So people believed very strongly in numerical ratios. Every kind of musical interval had perfect ratios, discovered supposedly by Pythagoras and others. Um, so an octave is two is to one, a fifth is three is to two, and all of this. And so music was symbolic of order and perfection in the cosmos. Now, Gradually, this belief in this universalism of perfect symmetry and ratios and orders and all of this in the Enlightenment gave way to a more of an anthropocentric idea of music. So instead of speculating about order and perfection in the cosmos through all these numbers, treating music as maths more or less, suddenly people began to be human-centered or anthropocentric and discover the messiness and diversity of you know, musical expression and experience. And it's all about things unfolding in the here and now. So the big debates in the Enlightenment were moving away from a kind of a vertical perfection of symmetry and cosmology and all of this into the imperfect perfection of the here and now and all of this unfolding. And, and so I try to remind myself of this. Um, I think all academics are perfectionists. We drive ourselves crazy with our perfectionism. We work long hours. We do all these sorts of things. Um, I think perfection also boils down to trust because academics spend a lot of their time looking at proofs of publications, correcting things, sending them off. When a publication comes back, you never even want to open it because you don't want to see whether errors are still in there because there's nothing you can do about them at that stage. Or if you make a recording 
or if you speak at a live discussion event and it's being recorded and then you listen back later, my advice is don't listen back later, um, you, you hear all sorts of things. Uh, so you sort of have to trust in the here and now and the way things will unfold, this imperfect perfectionism or perfect Im imperfection. So, uh, enough about me um, or perfection or imperfection. Um, I'm going to introduce two of our speakers and hand over to Margaret, who is going to talk more about herself and introduce two more of our speakers. So, to my right is the wonderful Sophie Ross, and uh, I have quite a detailed biography here. Do not read it all. It's okay. really long and you'll it's be hideous. It's very people. long and it's full of wonderful, wonderful names of all of her experiences with plays in the Melbourne Theatre Company, the Sydney Theatre Company, uh, TV series including Hunters, Casualty and All Saints. Um, and I'm uh, Sophie uh, works with Safe Theatres Australia and also manages a, an online publication and resource hub, Asylum Insight. Um and I'll just, I, the one verbatim sentence I'll read from the end of her biography is, Sophie is a perfectionist. <laughs> so there we are. Um, and uh, to my left, sitting at the end, is Jeremy Kleeman, who, uh, like me, is a musician, like Margaret as well, and, well, we're all musicians uh, in many I'm senses. Not. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, <laughs> and Definitely so not. Jeremy is an opera singer. He's a bass baritone. Um, I'll ask him to explain that later. And he studied at the place where Margaret and I teach, Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, where uh, he did his bachelor and master's degrees. Um, and he's also a graduate of the Victorian Opera Developing Artists Program um, and was a scholar with Melbourne Opera Trust. Um, so he is in demand as a, an opera singer with many companies around Australia and internationally. Um, and he was just telling me he's about to go off to Sydney for a competition, so he can tell you more about that. Um, and so we've got loads of stories that we're going to share with you, but at this point, I'm going to pass the conch, the baton, to Margaret to introduce more people. Lovely. Thank you very much, David. Uh, apologies for my voice. I do have laryngitis. I don't normally sound this deep and husky. Um, but it's better than squeaking, so here we are. So... Uh, as she did uh, briefly mentioned, yes, I'm a lecturer in music in performance science and it, what that means is that I'm really intensely interested in how people learn and acquire expertise and also how they uh, express it, uh, how they execute their knowledge under pressure and um, certainly that drives a lot of my work and uh, research and clinical work in understanding performance anxiety and of course uh, perfectionism or uh, well, the need or belief that we have an, an unrelenting standard of perfection that we need to meet uh, in our performance certainly does drive a lot of anxiety at that moment. And um, that's what I'm curious about, trying to soften uh, for people and help people adjust into something that's a bit more facilitative as a performance energy rather than performance anxiety. And so, um, as a performance psychologist, so most of my work now is in, in psychology. So, it's really about helping people um, perform at the upper range of their capabilities for most of the time and actually enjoy the process. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, so, yes, the journey to come here now started from a year 12 uh, music performance exam and a choke. And back in the 80s, 
when uh, I was learning music, music education didn't cover performance skills. It covered repertoire and it covered, um, you know, perf achieving perfection, avoiding bum notes, avoiding mistakes, but not about managing the adrenaline and the emotion uh, that comes along with performance. But certainly, you know, you know, we might want to achieve perfection in the practice room, but never, never at the act or the point of performance. And certainly then we need to be a realist. So does perfectionism sit in, in reality, in daily life? How does that sit? So what I'm curious about is helping people achieve an understanding and experience of being, being achieving perfection that's healthy, that's flexible, that's constructive and productive for them. Because often perfectionism in this extreme drives avoidance. So afraid of submitting a piece of work or ex executing a performance that's substandard, whatever standard that is, uh, that we believe it to be, and that can cause people to avoid. And that's, I think, where we suffer as a society. So let me introduce now the two other speakers on the panel. First, we have Emma King. So Emma is originally from Western Australia, having moved to Melbourne to pursue Australian, from Australian Football League women's football at Collingwood. She's taken, she was taken as a marquee player and played seasons 2017-18 with Collingwood and has now moved to North Melbourne ahead of the 2019 season. <laughs> yep. Emma's played football all her life, starting at Auskick at age seven and playing all the way up into under-14s with the boys. She moved over to the Women's League from 14 years old until now. Emma started playing football because she wanted to do everything her brother did. <laughs> so cute. Um, according to North Melbourne Football Club AFLW coach Scott Gowans in June this year, she's the best ruck in the competition. She's big, strong, she can play forward, she can play back and is known for her exceptional ability to impact game. Winning the hit out and getting the ball out of the clearance and that's valuable, getting the ball going your way. So thank you, Emma, for being here. And last but not least, we have uh, Alan Duffy. So... Professor Duffy is an astro astrophysicist at Swinburne University and lead scientist of the Royal Institution of Australia. His research involves creating baby universes, oh so cute, on supercomputers to understand how galaxies like our Milky Way form and grow within vast halos of invisible dark matter. He then tries to find this dark matter as part of SABRE, the world's first dark matter detector in the southern hemisphere at the bottom of a gold mine. When not exploring simulated universes, you can find him explaining science on ABC Breakfast TV, which is where I first saw you, Alan, at Catalyst and Tens the Project. So as stated on his Swinburne website, his role can best be described as doing cutting-edge research, then trying to explain it to as many people of all backgrounds as he can. So Alan, I'd like to start the session with a question to you regarding what I consider might be a dual-edged sword of perfectionism in scientific research. So in this discipline, we engage in a constant quest for the perfect answer or solution. So surely then the process of refining knowledge accepts that some level of imperfection exists before we reach that perfection. But in fact, does perfection exist in science? And if so, once found, what else is there to do? Yeah, right. Uh, that's a great question. So. Yes, I mean, at some level, when you find the, the sort of the right perfect answer, you're out of a job, right? So we're all cynical, so we keep fudging it and we keep getting it wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. We, so science is the quest for knowledge. It's the quest for understanding. And when 
we talk about perfection in science, we go all the way back to the ancient Greeks in particular, where the, the, the term perfect actually originates. And it meant to be finished or complete. So to have a perfect theory is one that describes everything, and then you're done. Along with that strive for perfection was an ideal of simplicity, and that, uh, and we call it reductionism. But the idea is, is familiar, I think, to all of us, that we live in a messy, complex world that obeys certain laws, and by understanding those simple laws, you can explain so much. A perfect example is in my own field of astronomy where we have the stars and the planets and they're all doing crazy things. And we try to explain this with many different orbits and stacked circles and the whole thing was a mess. And we ripped all of that out and replaced it with Kepler's laws, three laws. Vastly simpler, but it wasn't quite perfect. It missed ellipses. So then we had to go a little bit further. Essentially underpinning all of that was Newton's law and that was pretty, pretty perfect until we realized that Mercury wasn't quite behaving. And that drove us to an even deeper, more perfect understanding of the universe itself, which is Einstein's theory of general relativity. And that is a single equation. It's the simplest encapsulation of the knowledge that we've acquired over thousands of years, but I can barely understand it. So simple doesn't mean easy, but it does appeal as a sense of perfection. But we know it's incomplete. We, we know that there must be a deeper level of understanding. So there is still this quest. The problem is no one said that the universe has to be understandable or explainable. As humans, we look for patterns, we look for explanations. We, all of us in our everyday lives, will try to strive and find the meaning behind those events. Sometimes they're just random. Randomness destroys that perfection, that, that, or at least if you don't take into account randomness as the very bedrock of the universe itself, and we call this quantum mechanics, but that will break that perfect picture. And that has been a schism that uh, began last century, and we still haven't quite come together as, as a field, uh, as scientists. We still deal with the ideal of our beautiful, perfect description with Einstein is incomplete and incompatible with the messy world of quantum mechanics. And if someone, maybe the younger people in the audience here, can come up and bridge those two worlds, then you will have surpassed Einstein and Hawking you will have unified the two great theories of our time, and this is called the grand unified theory. And maybe that's perfect, but I suspect that that is a road we will never quite reach. So we will always be striving for perfection, this simple, singular theory that explains everything. And that will be the end of a journey that we started back with the ancient Greeks. That's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful explanation. Thank you. Was that, Thank was you that a perfect so answer? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, 11 out of 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so part of the 
idea of this event and this series of events is to bridge the divide between the arts and the sciences. And I don't even like using the word divide. Um, uh, there are so many different contexts that we need to explore to look at how these things come together. Um, but you've, you've, you've talked about how the idea of perfection goes right back to antiquity. Um, and people talk a lot today about the two cultures, a, a term um, coined by C.P. Snow, um, a, a famous novelist and sometime master of Christ College in Cambridge. Um, and uh, he talked about the arts and the sciences as the two cultures, or let, let's call them the sciences and the humanities. And today we use fancy acronyms like uh, what's it, STEM and HASS. And, and um, a personal anecdote, I remember when I first heard the acronym STEM in a, in a common room in Cambridge, people saying, oh, the government's created this new acronym STEM, um, and it means industrially linked um, disciplines, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And my mathematician friends uh, working in pure mathematics, they were rubbing their hands with glee. They said, they don't realize that what we do has no practical application whatsoever. <laughs> They're going to give us money so that we can do our research, which was, they were very, very pleased. Um, but uh, all of these are very reductive comments, of course. And, and uh, there's been a book that followed C.P. Snow's two cultures called The Three Cultures, which is then sciences, social sciences, humanities. But I, I wanted to just sort of riff a little bit on this, Alan, and see what, what you would come up with there um, in the sense that we, we, we hear about the development of scientific method in the early modern period as, as the kind of repeatable, observable phenomena. You know, something, experiments that can be repeated that can absolutely prove something black and white. And this has become very much um, the notion that we have of hard sciences, things that are provable, things that are repeatedly testable. And, um, and so we have a black and white answer. In the humanities, we, we sort of relish this ambiguity. We're trying to tease out differences in meaning. We're talking about the chaos that you alluded to. And um, we're, we're talking about shifts in interpretation, different cognitive associations that people might have in different languages, and or the, the ways that different ideas might resonate in different cultures, and, and just basically cultural relativism. And, and this is, these two things, like they're like the yin and yang of meaning in a sense, you know, cultural relativism and uh, scientific perfection. <laughs> do, you, do you have anything to, to, to riff off in, in terms of, you know, where do you see this idea of sciences providing black and white answers? Is that, is that uh, do you think that's a defensible idea or do you think there's enough ambiguity in, in what the kind of thing that you're looking at? Yeah, so there's always the appeal, and that is the trap in the physical sciences, right, or STEM or whatever uh, horrible term there is. We have, we like to think, pretend that there must be a definitive answer, and that's what gives you hope as you ply through your labs and you're trying to figure out why isn't it working for the you know millionth time. And maybe we'll get to to that later on about the just the sequence of failures before you ever get anything right. But there is that appeal that there is some larger truth to be discovered, an unambiguous answer that the earth goes around the sun, not the other way around, or that there are there is a worldview that exists whether we discover it today 
we discovered a century later. It's someone from Europe who discovers it, someone from um, Asia. It doesn't really matter. That's just something waiting to be discovered. For certain, in certain contexts, I think that's true. I think there are, there are absolutes to be known and to be found. But there's also our worldview and, and how we frame the, these unimaginable scales. We, we talk about the behavior of, of atoms. Just to get a sense of, of an atom, I mean, if you know, I have to pluck a hair, the atom would be the width of that hair, um, and the, 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 sorry, the center of the atom would be the width of the hair, and the electron that we think of as the outer edge of the, of the atom would be whizzing around us some sort of distance in the CBD. And we think of that as a single body, but actually it's nothing of the sort. The picture we have that was constructed, perhaps because it was informed by people who understood astronomy, uh, just that's the direction we discovered it, had in mind a picture, and that picture has lasted, even though quantum mechanics tells us it's completely flawed. So just because something awaits to be known doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to describe it in the fundamental true way. And maybe with our limited brains of just being able to visualize three dimensions, which is where artists come in very handy, because they often think beyond those three dimensions, um, we can't picture even Einstein's 4D, four dimensions, space and time. We, we talk about warps and bending of space time. Who, who understands what that means? No one pictures that. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. Um, there's an exhibit uh, called Particle Wave on at the um, uh, planetarium at the moment. It was created by Alicia sometimes. And, and there is a meeting of, of art and science because artists are able to explain and describe the indescribable and to really try to put this into to words or into vision that we can appreciate. In science, we cheat because we have mathematics. And we can always rely on the mathematics to give us the right answer. But whether we can picture that answer or not, I think probably not because of our basic ape-like brains. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. I, we've touched on emotion um, a little bit so far, and it's, it's now to this whole question of emotion that, that we need to turn. And I want to ask Sophie a question about, you know, how do you assume a character role when, when, you're, when you're acting? And um, do, you, do you actually feel that you're taking on that character's attitudes towards perfectionism? Are you taking on the absolute inner persona um, of, of that character that, that you play? Uh, the very short answer to that is yes, definitely. Um, but I think I've just been listening to Alan's uh, answer and talking about the way scientific theories try to make sense of the random. And I think perfectionism in an individual is the kind of micro version of that, actually. I think that humans are perfectionists as a way of gaining control over the random which we all know that we live with all the time. And so the idea that anyone is a perfectionist or that you might say I'm a perfectionist or she's a perfectionist seems kind of beside the point to me because as an actor, my job is to recognise that every human is a perfectionist and that it manifests in very different ways in different people. I've, I've yet to come across a human that hasn't tried to make some sort of sense of the random. And we all do it really differently. And so 
what's fascinating and really a privilege as an actor is that you get this toolbox, which is a, a script in the case of an actor, with a bunch of information about a person and with those tools you get to, to work out what it is that they're trying to make sense of, what, what it is that they're trying to control and how they're trying to control it. And that, to me, is it, it, it's psychology. I think acting is very similar to psychology in that it is a it is a, an examination of human behaviour. And so, yes, absolutely, my job is to take on the perfectionism of the character that I inhabit. But it's also an analysis and an understanding of why that character has that need, and what is it that they're afraid of, and you know, ultimately I think it comes back to most people, with most people, to this idea of random and death and chaos. <laughs> um, so whether that means that somebody, you know, ha is, is dressed, dressed perfectly all the time or has a type A personality or they might appear, they might be a, a complete kind of sloth to outward appearance, there'll be something that they're trying to hold control over. And that to me is the kind of exploration of being a performer, an actor. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a real gift to be able to do that because I don't – I have now – I have the lucky kind of perspective that I will meet anybody in the world and know that they're trying to do the same thing that I am. It's just displaying in a different way. Um, and the other thing <laughs> – there's a bit of an occupational hazard that exists as an actor too in that we all do have different versions of perfectionism and sometimes – you, when you perform as a character eight times a week, which is the kind of standard amount of shows you do in a season, if you're in a play, you often will take your character home with you. It's now considered to be uh, just generally psychologically accepted that the fake it till you make it thing actually exists. So psychologically you start to take on board characteristics. So if, if I'm playing a character that has perfectionistic traits that are uh, pronounced in a different way to mine, I sometimes find myself, you know, four weeks into the season just like obsessively trying to get my hair to look perfect, which is, you know, not in, not in any way possible for me <laughs> or, or whatever it is and I will start to behave that way myself, which is, you know, just an occupational hazard, I think. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Sophie. That's really interesting to hear you talk about controlling what's random. Um, uh, and that's a sort of nice segue, I get, to what Jeremy is, is doing in his work and as are a lot of classical, uh, elite classical musicians, which is executing a highly, um, a highly refined, highly practised, uh, fine motor sort of activity um, in, a, in a very controlled way. And so, and Jeremy, I'm curious about that, the counterproductive side of perfectionism that you've talked about being anxiety or stage fright. So as you've reflected, opera singers have to surrender control when the stakes are highest. So when you're going for a difficult high note, anxiety instigates muscle tension, which makes the achievement of what you're striving for very difficult. So could you speak a little about your experiences with this and any strategies you've found to overcome it? I'm curious. For sure, yeah. So. When Sophie was talking just then, a lot of that rang true for me as well. And I think, is this microphone working properly? Yeah. Yep. You sound amazing. 
amazing. Oh, okay, right. He sounds beautiful, doesn't he? This doesn't he? sound quite perfect to me. Actually, that's a perfect, it's a perfect segue as well because that's the thing about opera singing is um, I guess there's a very specific expectation that the audience has when they listen to an opera singer in terms of they want to hear a singer who is basically producing a tone that is beautiful and even and has a, has a similar colour all the way from the very bottom of your voice to the very top. And they're sort of sitting there almost expecting that. And I know, you know, we shouldn't really think about that, but we do. Uh, and so the thing is, I mean, the natural inclination there is that you want to kind of control the sound that you're making as you're making it. And you want to make sure it sounds perfect or you want to make sure it sounds as good as it can possibly be. But in some ways, that's kind of impossible. And I think especially for opera singers, it's kind of impossible because when we sing, the sound that we're hearing in our head isn't the same sound that the audience is hearing. And you've, you've probably all experienced that when you listen to your own voice, speaking voice recorded, and you think, that's not me, that doesn't sound like me. And that's because, you know, you're hearing the, the sympathetic bone resonance and the tongue, you know, the, the muscle resonance is, is coming to your ear in a different way, obviously. So, so you hear a different sound. So basically, if we were to try and listen to our singing as we're singing in a live performance, one, we'd be hearing the wrong thing. And two, in the act of listening and judging our own sound, it actually just takes you out of the moment that you're performing in. And it means you're not with the audience, you're not responsive, you're not um, free. And uh, as a result, you kind of just glaze over your eyes, sort of go into a, a different... And I know all this because I've done it, and I think we've all done it. And, you know, I used to do it... I used to do it when I was a kid. I used to like close my eyes sometimes and I'd be in my own world. And mum would come to performances and say, Jeremy, open your eyes. You know, we want to see you. And if I did open them, they'd be glazed over because I wasn't there. So, yeah, that's, that's the whole thing. And I ha I've had to get over that. And, and the way I've had to get over that is, is through surrendering control and finding out the best way to do that. And as I was alluding to there with the high notes, I mean, I'm about to do a competition on the weekend and one of the pieces they're probably going to ask for ends with this big high note that I know if I stop and think about it while I'm doing it, probably won't work. And I've had that happen in performances. You know, you go for a high note and it just closes up on you and it's very embarrassing. Uh, and so the strategy there is you kind of just have to be courageous and go for it. And it's, it's, it's really difficult because you know that it might not work if you don't do that. And there's actually something that really helped me with this, actually two things. Um, one of them was a sports psychologist, and I think it's actually all really quite related. Uh, and uh, we had a sports psychologist come to talk to us at um, Melbourne Opera Trust, which is the uh, program I was in. And his name was Phil Jauncey, and he uh, actually was with the Brisbane. You know, yeah, he was with the Brisbane Lions when they were winning all their premierships, and he was with the Australian cricket team when they were doing really well. He's amazing. And anyway, he said this. He said a lot of things, and he was talking about uh, how your body, well, your mind informs your body. So, like, if you're, I don't know, feeling sad or something, often your body will assume a, a, a sad position. But he actually has this theory that it goes backwards as well. Your body informs your mind. And that really stuck with me because he said, you know, often he sees people when they're, uh, you know, backstage about to go on to a performance and they're in this sort of really negative position. They're kind of leaning backwards, you know, just a terrible posture. And, I, and if you look around before people are doing things, they, you do see this quite a bit, leaning back or leaning back in a or actually slumped over in a chair like I was doing before. Uh, and, and then he said he's come up this way to, to counter it, which was to put your non-dominant foot forward and then put your hands in the air and lean forward. And he kind of did 
you kind of do this. And I've actually just been doing that backstage before every performance I've done since then. That was five years ago. So I, I basically... But it's great. It really gets you into that mindset where, okay, I'm just going to go for this because it activates your mind and you think, okay, I'm going to surrender and go for it. And, yeah, the other, the other one was um, a book I've read called Performance Success by this guy, Don Green. I'm, am I just stealing all your thunder? Uh, yeah. And uh, he, compares, he compares this sort of situation, going for a high note, like a race car driver going around a corner. And what, what happens when you're you know, or, or exiting a freeway really quickly on a corner. So if you're, if you're on a corner in a car and you think, oh, you know, crap, I'm going a bit too quick. I'm, I could lose control here. The instinct is to actually put the brakes on for most people. But actually, if you did that, you'd be really stuffed because the physics of it, you could probably explain it better than me, <laughs> it would spin out of control and, you know, the car just completely just spins out. So the actual, the best thing to do in that situation, and, you know, maybe I'll save someone's life here, is to put the accelerator on and go through. Um, and, and that actually keeps the car, you know, in, in control, ironically. So, and it's the same thing for singing a high note. You know, you just have to go for it. Put the accelerator down and off you go. And hopefully it works. And if it doesn't, oh well. <laughs> it's very, very inspiring words, Jeremy. And... and um it's just, again, there's this idea about trust, you know, uh, that can get you through. What what we think about perfectionism, I think, is often just a whole set of, of invented structures, you know, or, or we're, we're worried about what everyone else is thinking is perfect. And, and um, sometimes we just have to trust ourselves to go through that. And I actually see, uh, in what you're talking about in terms of being in the zone, I actually see a lot of similarities with sport. Um, and the sim I mean, in popular imagination, people might think, oh, you know, opera, classical music, um, rugby, AFL, they're completely different things. But look at the lifestyles of sports people and musicians. Everyone does their training in the morning, you know, get out, do your running, do your scales, uh, watch your diet. Um, you've got to make sure that you're ready for a big, big game, big performance. Um, Go to a physio or an osteo waiting room and you'll see, you know, people who specialise in sports physiotherapy or, or osteopathy, they're all treating musicians. Uh, musicians will go regularly to sports physiotherapists and osteopaths. They all have the same treatment. They all have the same, well, different issues um, caused by different things. But um, there's a, and, you know, Jeremy's about to go off to a competition. Um, there's, there's so many uh, similarities, you know, you have the conservatories and you've got the AIS, um, really, really intensive training. And so it's to sport that we're going to turn. Um, and I was really, I'm, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not from Melbourne. I don't have a team. <laughs> um, but I'm, a, I'm about, yep, about to have one. Yep. Um, very, very well recommended. I was actually wondering, what, what would you see? Is there such a thing as a perfect AFL game? And if there is, what, what does that really mean? Yeah, that's an interesting question for um, a game of sport. Um, and I've just had a, I've had a think about it and I've, I've been able to break it down. So um, I think from an outside perspective, you would say the perfect game is winning winning that game. Um, in the, the long term in the season, 
Um, the overall perspective from a club would be to win that premiership. That's the ideal perfection for the season is to get all the way through the season, no injuries, it's another um, part of it aspect, but to be holding up that trophy at the end of the season is probably what you would say we had a perfect season. We made it from start to finish and we get to hold up that trophy. Um, but again, that's not exactly how it's going to be. Uh, if you look at it from a coach's perspective, um, they've set up these game plans. Um, you've got your strength and conditioning coaches. They've trained you a particular way. They, um, you run a certain amount each training session. Everything's perfect through your training sessions, but on game day... There's so many aspects, so many invariables that can happen. The actual game is not how it plans out to be. Um, but the end result could still be perfect. We could still win that game. So, again, to the fans and to the clubs and even to the coaches and the individuals and your, the players, we had a perfect game. We came out with what we wanted um, going into it. Um, it just wasn't how we prepared. Uh, I could say the perfect preparation of perfectionism going into a game would be um, winning the tap, going straight to our midfielder, going straight to our forward, going straight to a goal. Our defenders block them. It's zero to 100 and whatever we get in that game. That would be a perfect game in, in hindsight, but that never happens because there's so many aspects. Um, with the individual, as a, as a player myself, it could be broken down into how I've prepared into the game. So... Um, if I think I've warmed up correctly, I'm already I'm, I'm going towards a perfect game. If I go into the game, and for me, lucky for me, my anxiety gets to go away straight away. I'm the ruck, so I'm in the game straight away. Um, I'm touching the ball, and a lot of anxiety comes from not being able to hold that ball yet. So people haven't had a perfect game until they hold that ball or get within the game. And then from there, it's each individual effort that you perform um, that you would count as playing out your perfect game. So, again, as a ruck, I would be every single um, ball up, every stoppage, I would be thinking, if I get this tap and it goes to my midfielder, that's perfect for me. So it can be broken down. And then, again, at the end, we have a perfect result of winning the game. And with the teammates as well, um, it's did we play our role for the team? If we felt we played our role for the team, you've had a good game. So, um, yeah, I think that's... There's many aspects to it, but it's never 100% how we've prepared. It's really inspiring. I, I mean, I as as you were talking about preparing, you know, do, do, do you feel like, do you ever feel like you've prepared absolutely perfectly, no, no matter what happens in the game, no matter how it goes, do, do, do you feel that you've done the best you can and, you know, you've done a perfect preparation? Me personally? Yeah. Um, I think I actually... For myself, in the lead-up, um, if I feel like I've prepared perfectly, I'm very unsure about the game ahead. I prefer to go into a game not feeling 100%, but then I have 100% to give. Um, that sounds really contradictory, but that's how it works in my head. Um, sometimes I come off a really bad game and I get um, really bad or very good constructive feedback and I work harder that week and I, have, I perform better the next week. So... Um, I work in the negative. I like the constructive um, and I come out on the positive the, the following week. Fantastic. So, I mean, we're hearing a lot about collaboration and teamwork and, and all this sort of thing. I mean, have you ever heard the saying, if you want to get something right, do it yourself? And th this is a classic example. I mean, I, I fall into this all the time. Um, people who fail to delegate because 
they're perfectionists and they just want to do everything themselves and all of this. And this brings us on to our next question, which is to do with academic life and collaboration. And the uh, academic collaboration is a very weird and wonderful thing. Um, it can lead to all sorts of unexpected results. Um, it can lead to massive fallouts as well, you know. Um, but uh, most of the time, um, people get really inspired about working together. And so I've got a question for Alan. Um, there must be, at the back of every researcher's mind, sort of a nagging thought. And the nagging thought is that someone out there, unbeknownst to us, no matter how much Googling we do, and before the age of Google, you know, there, there was even, you know, less of a way to stalk, you know, these sorts of things. Um, there's this nagging idea that someone else is working on exactly the same thing, and they might even beat you to it, and they could be anywhere in the world. I mean, how, how do you feel about this, and how would you respond to dealing with this? Yeah, so... Uh this is called paranoia. Um, and as the old saying goes, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. And absolutely is the case. In science, um, there are any number of fascinating... There, there is an infinite number of questions to ask of, of this wonderful world. And it's really unfortunate that several times now, I, I appear to have asked the question two days late <laughs> and had a pub paper published and read and thought, my God, they did such a better job than me as well. So it, it happens and there is an incredible sense of pressure that goes with that. The idea, and perhaps you know, it's familiar to journalists of getting scooped, and there's a very dangerous side to that. In its best form, it drives you forward. In your ideal, you strive to do better, to do it quicker. Uh, and that's great. There's a negative side, a very dark side to this publish or perish model. And that is that the pressure can get too much. And that people will strive to give a perfect answer. And, and what that looks like in academia is you, you trim the data. There's a plot and there's points all over and you think, oh, there's a beautiful line, except, oh, oh that, sorry, sorry. Um, shivers there's a there's a there's a point and you know if that point we call it an, an outlier if that point wasn't there then that would be a perfect correlation that would be great never let the facts get in the way of a good story yeah that's it or a good theory as a theorist would say so we we tend to be very wary of that little voice and and it's that bias can be insidious and you can note oh well that Point. I, you know, I remember that run, and we had a, a par fluctuation, and you know that could that could probably explain that outlier. So maybe we'll downweight it. But what you don't do is go. Well, those data points that lie on the line, they were also taken during that time, but they are conforming to the right answer. They're lying perfectly on the line, so I won't remove those. So we get this confirmation bias. We only keep looking for the error when we think it's there, and then we stop looking for any more errors when we find everything lying perfectly on the line. So that's the insidious nature of, of that pressure, that paranoia. You have to be very diligent, very careful, because fundamentally in, in science, what you're producing, your performance, is, is all you have. You can't 
if you fake that, then what are you? What have you done to science, to your colleagues who trust your work? They'll test it and have no mistake. If they were close to publishing, they'll hammer you relentlessly as well. So you can be fined out, but, but more than that, it's the ideal of science that you don't, um, that you don't fake it, that you never buy to that pressure, but it can be insidious. And a lot of junior academics, that's maybe one thing we need to do as a discipline better is, is to coach our junior academics because the pressure is, is relentless and it's that cheating. Um, and I'm thinking in sports terms here actually, perhaps is the closest analogy. Um, it can really get to people and it can get to them in different ways. And, it's, and it, it speaks to the maturity of the culture and the team or the, or the dean who runs the faculty. Um, that that kind of behavior just isn't tolerated for all of the potential drivers that are making you go to that direction. You just don't, you always watch yourself and your teammates. So I suspect there's an analogy there in sports as well. Thank you, Alan. I'm curious to, to pull up, you're talking about judgments on you, about your work in relation to objective data and also in relation to your colleagues and what your peers and what society out there will, will, will do in terms of judging your work and, and the expectations they have of you and, and your belief about what they think is a perfect performance or you know, quality output. So I'm curious then, Sophie, you've talked about um, when you prepare for a character and taking on the character's perfectionism. What about your perfectionism in relation to your work as an actor? Does that, does the, does the relationship or judgment of the audience, <laughs> you know, affect how you execute your work? Well, the audience is obviously very important. I don't think, you know, if a play falls in a forest, <laughs> no one's around to see it, does it happen? Um, so, so, yes, again, is the short answer. But I, but I think something happens too where... It's a, it's a very particular sort of perfectionism that exists with acting, which I think is distinct from uh, opera singing or sport in that you have to be perfect in your craft to a point in the process of rehearsals and then something has to happen where, you th where you're able to throw out the craft completely and channel something. And I guess it's that maybe it's the same. I don't know. But I don't have to, you know, I don't have to hit a high note. I have to be perfect with my rendition of the truth, of authenticity, which is a very different sort of perfectionism. So in terms of the way the audience responds, if I feel that I have spoken, that what has come out of me is the truth for that person in that moment and that an audience has been witness to that, then I think I've done my job. But it's quite different to the kind of perfectionism that, it, that is specific to the craft of acting, which is where you would do your vocal warm-ups, learn your lines, work out all the intricate character details. That stuff happens in rehearsals and then you let it go and this kind of channeling or magic happens in the room and that's the bit that matters actually I think when it comes down to it and you have to have both and somehow you've got to be okay to let go of one at some point in the process. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so a, a degree of perfectionism isn't inhibiting you and your work. Oh, it do, no, it, it does. The, it definitely does. You just 
somehow, if, you, if you're getting it right, you have to let go of it. <laughs> and so the perfect, in order to be perfect, you have to let go of your perfectionism <laughs> is kind of the irony. In order to do the job of acting really well, I think, which is inhabiting and channeling a person and a spirit distinct from yours, you have to let go of your own perfectionisms. But you have to be perfect in your preparation to let go of them. So something that we talk about is a way of understanding what you do as actors on a stage is that you build the scaffolding of a perfect performance and they're all like the playground and that is really, really safe and the foundations are really safe and you know what they are and then you swing between them and that can be whatever it is in the moment and that moment is very dependent on audience. It's very dependent on the people that you're with and that you're acting with and responding to and it's energetically dependent. So every person in a live performance, every person in that space will affect the way you swing. But the scaffolding is 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 really uh, the foundations are deep and it's and it's strong. Mm, does that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We're going to turn to music again, and you know it's it's a bit of a bit of a truism to say it, it's not anyone here who hasn't grown up in the world of recorded sound. And recorded sound, it's just something that's with us constantly and, and the, the music industry is enormous. And, um, and the classical music industry, I should say, within that recording industry is about 3% of the entire uh, music industry. But this whole idea of classical music, and I'm just going to talk about classical music because that's what we sort of tend to talk about uh, in this sort of field quite a lot, um, in the conservatorium anyway. Uh, it, it's Recording is the bane of classical musicians' lives because you grow up hearing these frozen performances. They're frozen in time. They're note perfect. Um, and they've been edited to within inch of their lives. And the thing is, sound recording as a technology is not as old as you might think. Um, Thomas Edison created his wax cylinder uh, phonograph in 1877. Um, fascinating, I mean, incredible the way he did this. He, he just basically theorized that if you could produce vibrations through friction, you could, and it produced a sound, that you could reverse engineer the process. And, and he worked out how to inscribe sounds down a tube onto a wax cylinder. Absolutely remarkable. Look up Wikipedia because that's about the extent of I can, what I can tell you about it uh, in terms of technology. Um, but as a cultural phenomenon, this led to a fundamental shift in how people experienced music. And most of the music that we hear nowadays is pre-recorded. Most of it uh, in our everyday lives. And um, this has really changed the way that practical musicians have learnt their music, especially classical music where works are played again and again and again. Go to a concert over the road tonight and you might think, oh yeah, I've got three different recordings of that concerto at home. I wonder, wonder how this soloist is going to do it. How is this soloist going to compare to the three I've got at home? And it's, it creates a lot of anxiety and perfectionism and all this sort of thing. People are frightened to take risks. So this also means in the recording studio, people don't take risks that they do in a live performance. Jeremy, do you have feelings about this? Would you take risks 
in live performance that you would never contemplate taking in a recording studio? Definitely. And isn't that ironic? Isn't it strange? Because you'd think that in a recording you have a chance to do it as many times as you like and get it right. But actually that I find that really crippling as well. And I, I mean, I resonated with everything you said there because, I mean, a, a reality of opera singing nowadays is that because there are so many people around the world that do it, you to get into different places overseas, to get into young artist programs, you have to send videos first. And you literally can't get into the room to do a live audition until they've vetoed your video. And so that's that's my main experience with recording because I, I hate it. You know, I mean, if someone out there wants to do a CD with me, I'm available. Uh, but <laughs> but I, <laughs> you know, it, doing these audition videos is the bane of my existence. And it's funny because, yeah, I'd, I'd much prefer if it was just a one take, one chance recording. Uh, yeah, and I'd be, I'd take that. But the fact that you can do it as many times as you want is debilitating. And I think that's where my perfectionism manifests um, the most. Uh, and it's horrible. I just did one recently and I hated it. And <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it's, a, it's actually an area I really need to work on. So I, that's probably as much as I have to say about it. But, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. You know, and just a bit of... I'm full of useless trivia, my, my students tell me. But they sometimes win pub quizzes because of me, which is great. Um, a bit of a, a, an interesting thing is that, you know, most pop songs today are four minutes long. Coincidentally, Edison's wax cylinders were around four minutes long. Um, and back in the early days of recording, they had to do it all in one take. If they made a mistake or if they chipped the wax, they'd have to start again. Um, but there we go. Jeremy, you're not alone. I worked with someone, an MC, uh, who had exactly the same issue as you. So stand firm. But I, I am available if, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to cancel that out because maybe, you know, one day I'll do a record. Yeah, but okay. who knows? Yeah. Um, thank you, Jeremy. Look, Emma, I'm just um, aware that you wanted to respond to Sophie before about the freefold swinging between some firm scaffolds. Yeah, you um, mentioned the fundamentals through um, your preparation and uh, lead up into your um, your practice takes, I suppose, before the um, the live the live performance, and it's pretty similar in sport. I'd say all training um, is all your fundamentals. We start out with handballing back and forth. That's fun. Uh, handballing back and forth. I've done that since I was seven years old, but I'm I'm now 24 years old playing at the highest level. We still handball back and forth. <laughs> kicking, handball, kicking, handball. And then you play out your perfect game plans that the coaches have put forward. So that's perfection. That's in our training. That's if everything went perfectly in a game, that's how we play it out. We practice it on and on and on. So when you get to game day, it's in the back of your mind. This is how we're moving the ball. This is where the next person should be. So when I look up, there should be a person there ready for me. The same thing. They should be coming out to the left. I should be leading out to the right, blah, blah, blah. Sense. That's how we want to play it out perfectly. Don't give away so. the game plan. Yeah. <laughs> right, then left. Not left and right. Thank you so much. Um, we've got an incredible brains trust here in on the panel. Uh, and I'm curious now, we've been speaking to you for quite a while. So we'd like to open up to you some questions. And as I ask this, I've realised we haven't thought exactly how we're going to do this in terms of passing a mic around. Ellie. Help. Thank you. So please, yeah, um, take it away. Ellie, you can, yep. Um, we've talked a lot about um, the different styles 
um, between sport and science and music and stuff. But what I was wondering, um, Resilience Project, Hugh deals with kids in prison and elite athletes predominantly. And um, supposedly elite athletes have the highest anxiety levels um, of uh, anyone under the focus microscope of the public. So I was wondering what are the common uh, issues and ways to deal with the anxiety, and this one's for um, the professional. Uh, so, yeah, go for um, it. The ways that we um, accommodate anxiety. Yeah, um, it definitely comes down to the individual and, and how they prepare for their game. Um, for instance, the way I like to get over anxiety um, before a game is I like to pump up my teammates. If I know they're... I build up their confidence and we're going into the game together and they're up and about... That makes me have trust in the team and I believe that um, we're going to have a successful game. Another way for me is, again, I, I'm the ruck, so I get to start at the start of the game. So I'm in the first play. Um, uh, with social media, another aspect of massive anxiety for um, players is uh, the public taunting them or positive and negative that you could get all through social media. It's um, how you approach it. You can either take it on as negative feedback and not grow from that or you can learn from it and um, just like your coaches would give you constructive feedback, um, bring it into your next game. Um, a lot of the negative feedback in social media, um, we have to be told, take it quite lightly. Uh, they they don't know the preparation as much as the public believe they know how much goes on um, in the lead up to a game. They don't actually know what it um, all entails. Uh, um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of it coming out in the men's AFL currently when um, they struggle with mental uh, the mental side of um, being in the limelight, and I think it it primarily comes back to how the the club takes care of you. Um, if you feel like you belong, that's a very important part of women's football, especially. Um, we prefer to um, we perform better if we feel like we belong as part of the team. As uh, Alan McConnell, the GWS coach, said uh, a couple months back, it explains it perfectly the difference between men and women's sport is um, the act of belonging. You perform better and men uh, feel they belong when they perform better, so the opposite. Um, but, yeah, with the anxiety, it's very individual and um, it comes back to who you surround yourself with and the culture that they provide for you and... Um, if they give you that balance between work, life, social and um, everything else. Another question? Please. Um, this one's for the performers amongst you, so acting, music and sport. Um, we've talked about how... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We've talked about how it's about what you perceive as perfection, but are you necessarily the right people to dictate what is perfection, or is it perhaps your audiences? I'll just start. I think that's <laughs> it's such a good question because, I mean, I think it's so interesting because sometimes I'll do a show which I'm which the process has been extraordinarily supportive. Everybody in the room's had a great time. We think we've made 
a fucking amazing piece of art and then it gets just absolutely ravaged by reviewers and no one comes. <laughs> and that happens fairly often where you genuinely do think that you're speaking to something that is going to speak to an audience. But I suppose that is an eternally difficult question to answer and, you know, we, we know there are many great pieces of art that exist now that, won't, that weren't recognised in their lifetime or when their art, the artist was alive and sometimes I... Sometimes I think maybe a piece of work is important even if at the time the audience doesn't see it. Sometimes, obviously, we might be up our own asses. It's really, really hard to know. But the culture of reviewing is also a really interesting one because that that's the audience view that we hear loudest but it's a very, very particular audience perspective. And what we might think is an audience response is in fact three people's response. So it's... It's, in a, it's a really complicated question and I, I haven't come up with an answer to it yet. But I think an audience is vital, of course, and, yeah, part of the job of performing is to entertain and if you don't do that, then you're probably doing something slightly wrong. <laughs> yeah. and, and just if I can add to that, I mean, that was such a great answer. I totally agree. But, uh, yeah, it's like you can feel the live feedback of the audience as you're doing it as well and I think that's what I really rely on. I, I feel, especially, I mean, it's more obvious when doing something that's comic because you can hear it. Uh, but yeah, and I, it's it's something I really crave, and it's actually something I've really struggled with as well. Because I was thinking about this as well. Because back at school, you know, I, I did a lot of sciences at school as well, and maths and things. And you can you can get the perfect answer. You can you know five plus five is ten always, and you're right. And I, you get you get a plus, and you and then you go out into the real world and you're performing, and yeah, you're relying on reviews. You hope your friends and your partner are honest with you, and you need that feedback. But yeah, I really and that's the thing as well. When you're talking about at the end of the game, you've won the game, and that's the perfect result. Like, we, we don't kind of get that either. I mean, sometimes we do comps, but that's not the main thing. It's sort of like, what is the win for us? I, I, I'm kind of jealous that you at least say, oh, well, at least we won that game. Because I don't even know if I've won the performance or not <laughs> a lot of time. I mean, I'll ask, you know, my partner's really honest with me. So I, I really trust her feedback. And, you know, and it, yeah, but I think that's really important. I think that's so important that, you know, if you have people around you that tell you you're good no matter what, and that's a real problem with friends. You have friends as well. You know what you want to – you go supporting. Like some people here that know me might think I was terrible, but they'll still say I was great afterwards. You know, you need that feedback. Uh, yeah, it's such an important thing. Can I say one more thing? I think it's also – there's something really – you have to distinguish between – well, I think we need to think about the difference between art and entertainment. And as performers, we are kind of – doing both, sometimes at the same time, sometimes not. And I think as artists, part of our job is to ask questions of an audience and of society that they don't necessarily want to be asked at that time. As entertainers, our job is completely different and the audience response in the moment and them liking it is very important if our job is to entertain. It's not very important if our job is to challenge or to question something that's going to take a long time to get your head around as an audience. So it also depends on what it is that you're hoping to achieve and the questions that you want to ask. If you, if you break it up like that with the arts and the entertainment, um, I suppose the craft of a game would be um, you play out the perfect game. Um, so internally we as a, a playing group and the coaches and the staff we would see the craft side as probably our more ideal perfection, but as the public and fans watching the game, the entertainment side could be what you see as perfect. I'll just use the grand final just gone. Collingwood lost, but it was an amazing game to watch. 
It was such a tight game all the way through. They were winning and then they lost at the end. So their side, they would say, we, were, we did not play the perfect game. But all of Melbourne said, yes, it was a good game. I think that's exactly right. All of Melbourne agreed that was a perfect result because <laughs> Collingwood lost. <laughs> yes, now they don't play for Collingwood. Yes. So we've got, too time. Soon, oh, we've got time for one more question before we wrap up. Hi. Um, you guys talked a little bit about the conflict between um, science striving for perfection and humanities kind of delighting in the ambiguity. But there are sort of areas where, what about the areas where they sort of overlap? So I'm thinking maybe like linguistics, which is fundamentally sort of human, but we, there's ongoing attempts to try and codify it in science and maths. Is there a way to bridge that gap? Can, or are they sort of fundamentally unreconcilable? I mean, I, I, I think these are not polarized differences. I think, I think there's, a, there's a, a, a very, very broad spectrum and, and a meeting ground between them. When Jeremy was talking about how he got a perfect score in a maths or, or science test, and and then with music, you know, or, you know, who decides what is good? Some people might like it, some might not. It's this whole objectivity subjectivity thing coming out again. Um, and um, I, I mean, music is one of these weird rafts of disciplines. It's not a single discipline. It's it's an umbrella discipline. It, I, I always say music's the top of the food chain in the university because it actually relates to everything else. This, this is my little soapbox moment. Um, because, you know, it, it relates to studies of human anatomy. It relates to physics. It relates to acoustics. It, it, it relates to history and languages. It relates to so many different things. Emotion, Emotion indeed. Um, it relates to psychology. And so, um, but that's, that's my little soapbox moment. Um, I think that it depends what you're studying. Um, it depends what your field of expertise is. Just coming back to this question, you know, can we make this sort of stereotype of uh, hard answers and soft answers? I, I don't think we really can make that. I, I think there's always going to be, there, there are some things that require established methods. Um, there are some things that require established traditions of interpretation. So I, I think, you know, you have method and interpretation and the two mix as well. And um, I think that's all I'll say on that matter because I'm, I'm still pondering it. But, uh, you know, after however many years at university, I, st I still can't answer that question. I'm sorry. But um, does anyone want to riff on that? Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in on that one. I want to make clear that science as a lived experience is the vast majority of your time will be either being wrong, confused, or incorrectly confident um, because you were wrong, um, but you just thought you were right. So very, very rarely are you right, and that's simply because you were experiment after experiment after experiment, and finally you got an answer which to a certain level of precision is correct. And the rest of the time you're swimming in ambiguity, and to try to make sense of that that's the creative approach. That's where humans still have a place, even though linguistics is being codified and artificial intelligence neural network can give you an alarmingly believable response. You can trip it up. Eventually, you'll be in an ambiguous situation. A human would know what to do with it. The machine fails. So science is, as an everyday experience, is one of ambiguity. You have a toolkit that gives you precise answers that 
objectively can be correct, but always only to a certain level of precision to within a framework of the experiment. So we like to think of science as being this quest for the ultimate truth, but in reality, it's just a quest to know the answer a little bit better. And usually the question is, why am I here? What am I doing with my life? What's going on? In other words, it's a very human question. I, I also think that the words arts and sciences, we have very, we seem to have very hard meanings of them in, in English. And this is a bit of an issue because etymologically, you know, arts means skills and sciences means knowledges or not science means knowledge. And in a lot of different languages, um, ciencia or science or um, what, whatever cognate terms are used, Wissenschaft, they, they actually mean research today. Uh, so a lot of people doing humanities research in languages other than English are referred to as scientific researchers. So that's kind of a bit of a nuanced context that we have to take into consideration as well. But I think it's never a case of never the twain shall meet. I mean, they're meeting here. And, um, you know, we can see how all of these confluences um, and, and all of the anxieties that we've been discussing and all of the time that we spend in ambiguity. I mean, I, I tell my I tell my students, you know, research is a journey. It, it, you don't you don't arrive. You're just always on the way, in a sense. Um, and and it's it's a journey of discovery. Um, and you only have to get things right once. And that's true in a recording studio. You might have a difficult passage that none of the violins can play together except they only manage it once, and that's the one that goes on the CD. Um, and Edison got the light bulb to work once after how many failed tries? Who knows? Um, and on that note, the light bulbs are beginning to come around, uh, come on around the Botanic Gardens, and it's probably time that we begin to wrap up. So um, uh, I think a round of thanks are necessary to all of our speakers here. And also to Shitich uh, and Science Gallery and the wonderful people at Science Gallery who've made this uh, event possible. So um, on behalf of Margaret and I and all the speakers, we thank you all for coming and um, have a wonderful rest of 2018. And thank you, David and Margaret. I feel like we yeah. need a film review now. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in.